Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Sheehan, currently a sophomore at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden and co-hosts this podcast. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, the author of The Watergate Girl, about my experiences in Watergate, highly relevant to today's uh, interview. I am also an MSNBC legal analyst and the person who wears hashtag Jill's pins. And today's pin is a very special one. It was made for me by the owners of the Watergate Hotel. And it says 1973 at the top, which is the year that we were appointed as Watergate prosecutors. And the Watergate girl uh, is written at the very bottom. And then the hotel symbol is in between. We'll try to post a picture of it on the show notes so that you can see it more close up. Um, they gave it to me when I did a book event just before COVID ended my book tour. Um, but they hosted a book event at the hotel that was very lovely. And I'm very grateful to have this as a reminder of what is soon to be the 50th anniversary. Well, Watergate is always relevant on this podcast because, as many of you know, Jill was the only woman to have served on the Watergate prosecution team, which is why this week, when you're hearing uh, the 50th anniversary of Watergate, it's especially meaningful to her and our podcast. Because history guides the present and future and because we have yet to do an episode covering what happened in Watergate, we thought that this week would be the perfect time to dive into what happened, what it taught us, and how we can learn from Watergate moving forward. It's going to be a really great episode, one that I know my generation will learn a great deal from. So let's get right into it by having Jill introduce our guest today. Our guest today is Garrett Graff, the author of a new book called Watergate a new history. It explores what he now defines as the full scope of the Nixon presidency and the Watergate scandal. It's a comprehensive, very long, very heavy, but very well-written single volume account. Garrett is a distinguished journalist and best-selling author who has spent more than a dozen years covering politics, technology, and much, much more, including the intersection of all of those and national security. Today, he serves as the director of cyber initiatives for the Aspen Institute and is a contributor for Wired, CNN, and Politico. He's written many publications uh, and for many publications. He wrote for Esquire and Rolling Stone, New York Times. He's edited two of Washington's most prestigious magazines, The Washingtonian and Politico and has authored multiple books, including The Threat Matrix, the national bestseller Raven Rock, and the New York Times bestseller The Only Plane in the Sky. So we are very grateful to have Garrett with us today, and we have lots and lots of questions. Garrett, it is so nice to meet you sort of in person and have a conversation with you. Thank you for joining us today. It is my absolute pleasure. I'm very excited for this conversation. Same here. So there have been so many pieces written about Watergate and Richard Nixon. So I'm wondering what prompted you to write your book now and what did you hope would distinguish it from the other books written on the subject? I'm a journalist who spends most of my time covering what I describe as the intersection of technology and politics and national security. Um, And so have spent most of these last, you know, five or seven years uh, covering the Russian attack on the 2016 election, the Mueller investigation. Um, Bob Mueller was actually the subject of a, of a previous book that I wrote uh, when he was FBI director. Uh, and uh, the first impeachment and all of the weird stories of the Trump administration. And so that all led me to be interested in going back and looking at the last time our country confronted these similar questions of how you hold a criminal and corrupt president to account. And then um, as I started that research, uh, what I discovered was that the Watergate story as it has been handed down to us uh, through popular history and culture in the last 50 years is actually really not the story of what transpired during Watergate. 
Um, and so my goal with this book was uh, to try to take the Watergate story and tell it start to finish in a way that it has not been told in about a quarter century. Um, you know, this is, uh, Watergate has been sliced and diced a, a thousand different ways over the last 50 years. Um, you know, there are dozens of books uh, and memoirs by key participants, including, of course, Jill, who, uh, uh, who has one of the rare memoirs written by one of the people who was not also convicted of perjury or obstruction of justice, <laughs> which makes her memoir uh, more believable than many of the memoirs uh, that emerge from that era. Um, but, but the reality, uh, which will surprise a lot of people, is that there had not been a soup to nuts history of Watergate written since the early 1990s. Um, and that the story of Watergate has actually changed and evolved as we understood it, uh, as we understand it today, pretty significantly since the 1990s. Um, and I'm sure we'll sort of talk a little bit about that um, in the rest of this conversation. Um, but, you know, we've seen uh, huge releases of Nixon tape transcripts. We've seen, you know, the revelation of uh, the identity of Deep Throat, as Mark felt as the deputy director of the FBI, um, and, uh, and then also, you know, revelations about uh, events like the Chenault affair that really change our perception of the way that they relate to the events of, of Watergate uh, writ large. So I don't have a copy of the book right in front of me. Jill, do you have a copy of the book? Because it's such a long but very well-written book. And if you can turn to the side, just so our audience sees the, yeah, the width of the book, it's it's a huge book, but very well-written. I'm wondering, And it's heavy too, yes. Um, who is your target audience? Because my generation, we learn about Watergate and Richard Nixon uh, in history class and in textbooks. And I'm wondering who your target audience is for um, – this book? Is it me or Jill's generation or anyone really? I think it's, it's both. Um, you know, one of the things that's been really fascinating to me as I've been, so the book came out in February. Um, and as I've been out talking about it over the last couple of months, um, it, it, you know, for people of a certain generation, Watergate is such a formative memory. Um, you know, I was giving a book talk last week um, in New Hampshire and, you know, all sorts of people came up to me and, you know, talked about, you know, uh, working in the Watergate when they were in the in Washington in the 1970s or watching the hearings. Um, you know, the, they remember where they were when Nixon resigned, um, you know, sort of moments like that. Um, but then, you know, Watergate is an event that we continue as a nation to be fascinated by. Um, you know, I'm, uh, I am not of the generation who directly remembers Watergate, um, but I grew up in the 1980s um, and, you know, obviously was an aspiring journalist. Um, and, you know, the movie All the President's Men is one of the great films of the 20th century. Um, and, you know, Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman and the reporters who bring down a president, which is a mythology that I try to take on actually actively in the book, um, because I actually, I, I, I think um, that the telling of Watergate as we tell it in popular culture actually does a grave disservice to people like Jill and Richard Benveniste and the staff of the special prosecutor and the Rodino committee and the um, and the the Irvin committee um, because part of what makes Washington makes Watergate such a fascinating story to me is how many different heroes there were that emerged through the course of Watergate from 72 to 74, and that sort of our national memory that it only took two heroes to bring down Richard Nixon actually 
um, is uh, a, a grave misservice to looking at politics today in the context of sort of why, you know, why Watergate worked and the system didn't in the age of Trump. So you talked a little about the, the process of writing your memoir, and Jill, Jill has told me about her process of writing her memoir, and I wanted to ask about yours. So how did you find the information you included in the book? Um, like, did you interview anyone, listen to tapes, research original source materials? And I guess, what was then your biggest discovery? <laughs> uh, so my biggest misconception in, in this uh, was... Watergate is one of the most covered and most told moments of modern American politics. Uh, it's going to be pretty easy to put this story together because there's so much documentation about the events as they actually transpired. Um, and that turns out not to be the case, that in fact, uh, our national history and understanding of Watergate is still pretty unsettled. Um, as two very specific examples, um, you know, this month in June uh, of 2022, we are going to mark the 50th anniversary of the burglary on, on June 17th. Uh, and we still don't know who ordered the Watergate burglary or what the burglars were actually doing inside the Watergate that night. Um, you know, that there are competing theories of who ordered the burglary. There are competing theories of what the burglars were up to. Um, and that, in fact, it seems quite possible that there are, there were sort of two or three different motives among the burglars that night. Um, not all of which were clear to the other burglars. Um, and so, uh, you know, um, my book really tries to wrestle in some ways with um, with some of these open questions. Um, and so, you know, you'll have a scene in the book and then there's like a footnote that's like, it's also possible this conversation never happened at all. And is in fact, this conversation is denied by the other two people who said, you know, were said to be in the room at that time. Um, and there are some pretty divergent uh, and self-serving, I should add, uh, tellings of how Watergate actually unfolded. Um, yes, I was, I was just wondering just for my generation, like as you were writing this book, can you talk a little bit more about that process of writing this how you started and then um, you, you talked about having a new history of Watergate, how you um, started to develop that new history and what, I guess, shocked you, uh, if anything shocked you at all. Yeah, um, so there were really three buckets of new information that I was trying to bring to this story this time, new since the last time anyone sat down uh, to write the, the full history of Watergate. Um, the, the first is the identity of Deep Throat, as I mentioned, which is actually a single fact that pretty dramatically changes our understanding of the events that transpire within Watergate. Um, you know, we we have this idea from the All the President's Men movie uh, of Hal Holbrook playing Deep Throat in the shadows of the parking garage telling Bob Woodward to follow the money um, and, and have long believed that uh, Deep Throat was someone who you know, was a Nixon insider disgusted at the corruption that he saw, you know, out there protecting democracy and, you know, fighting for truth, justice and apple pie. Um, and it turns out that that's not what Deep Throat was up to at all. Mark Felt, as the deputy director of the FBI, actually is a figure that's familiar to a lot of us who have worked in offices. Um, who is the sort of bitter bureaucrat passed over for a promotion and who decides to launch his own personal uh, mission to take down the guy who stole the promotion from him. Um, and he thinks he is set to be the next director of the FBI. 
when J. Edgar Hoover dies. J. Edgar Hoover dies uh, coincidentally six weeks before the Watergate burglary. And, um, and, and Nixon does this seemingly unthinkable thing of appointing a loyalist no, uh, named Pat Gray, uh, an outsider, to head the FBI. And so Mark Felt sets out to sink Pat Gray um, and in his leaks to a variety of news outlets, not just the Washington Post and not just Bob Woodward, uh, tr tries his best for a year to undermine Pat Gray um, uh, and, and actually appears to care very little about Richard Nixon and, and that there are these fascinating moments where uh, Richard Nixon, where, where, Pat, where Mark Felt knows damaging information about Richard Nixon that he never bothers to tell anyone because he doesn't actually really care about Richard Nixon. So that's sort of one, one thread of the story that's new to our understanding. The second is the thread around um, what is known as the Chenault Affair, um, which is this series of shadowy events that unfold in 1968 during the presidential campaign, where it appears Richard Nixon uh, undermines the Paris peace talks that are supposed to be trying to bring the, the Vietnam War to a close, um, and does, does it uh, to his own political benefit, that he thinks it is to his political interest to keep the Vietnam War going. And so working through a Washington doyenne named Anna Chenault, he uh, stalls, he tells the South Vietnamese government to stall the peace talks. Um, and uh, Lyndon Johnson in the closing hours of the presidential campaign discovers this treachery, uh, tries to uh, confront Richard Nixon about it. Nixon denies the whole thing. Nixon, you know, wins the election. Johnson decides to bury the whole thing. Um, but Nixon knows that Johnson knows. And so he sort of spends his presidency terrified that this treachery is about to come out. And it turns out that this is hugely important to understanding Richard Nixon's overreaction in 1971 to the Pentagon Papers, which then leads to uh, of course, the creation of the plumbers unit, which leads to the dirty tricks of G. Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt in the 72 campaign. Um, and then um, the third bucket is just the, the immense volume of new files that have come out. Um, uh, and that this is... Um, you know, we've got three volumes of Nixon tape transcripts from his White House tapes that have been released in recent years, um, you know, thousands of pages of new FBI files and investigative files that have come out um, and, and all sorts of, you know, new iterative information that give us sort of color and texture about Nixon's presidency that we didn't have before. Can I interrupt, Victor, for a second? Um, I just want to, first of all, ask whether... Phil Mellinger has contacted you about Mark Felt not being deep throat. It, uh, no, I'm I'm aware of uh, I, I'm aware of Phil's theory, um, and I do think that there is some. Uh, uh, I, I think that there is some evidence that Mark Felt isn't deep throat alone. Um, that, uh, there, there might have been, um, both a sort of set of agents, uh, sort of working with Mark Felt to sort of spread leaks, uh, friendly to, to Mark Felt. Um, uh, and I also think it's, it's possible and there's some good evidence that, not everything that Woodward and Bernstein attribute to Deep Throat seems like it possibly could have come from Mark Felt alone. Um, but I think, Jill, where I settled, and I had a lot of conversations with a lot of people about this in the course of writing the book, is that I do believe 
that Mark felt is the person that Woodward and Bernstein thought of as Deep Throat. So I, it's, I, I do not think there's any support for Phil Mellinger's theory, and he has sent me research papers and slides. Uh, basically, he says it's John Dean. So I just want to say I don't believe that for one second. Yeah, I don't believe it's John Dean. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and but if you had asked any of us on the prosecution team, we did try to figure out who Deep Throat was while this was happening, and we would think of okay, could it be this? And we'd identify one piece of information that Woodward and Bernstein attributed to Deep Throat, and then the next one would come out, and we'd say, but that person doesn't know this piece of information, and. I, of course, it never occurred to us that the FBI, which did have compiled all this information, could have been the source of it. So it's 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 quite interesting. But so you mentioned that you talked to a lot of people in this. Can you tell us some of the people that you interviewed or uh, some of the source material that you used? Yeah. So I very carefully and deliberately made a decision to not go back and do fresh interviews with people. Um, that my, uh, my, uh, you know, I, I've written a, a lot of what I call, um, near history. Um, you know, all, all of my books and all of my writing sort of deal with, um, the cold war and more present time. Um, and I just don't believe at a really basic level that 50 years after the fact, you're going to get particularly reliable new information from sources um, that isn't particularly colored by sort of other people's memories of Watergate at this point. Um, and, and, and the example that I, that I really use in this is I wrote a previous project about the, um, the 50th anniversary of um, the Kennedy assassination. Um, and I wrote about the Lyndon Johnson's flight back from Dallas, Texas on November 22nd, 1963, um, back in 2013. And uh, what you see there are very distinctly three different layers of memory. Um, there's the contemporaneous documents and interviews, um, you know, that are captured, you know, sort of almost immediately um, in the, you know, that day, the weeks thereafter. Um, and then you see sort of a set of slightly fuzzier memories that unfold from uh, 63 uh, through the late 1960s. Um, and then, um, and, and I'm forgetting exactly which year, but then sort of 1967 or 1968, um, William Manchester's Death of a President comes out. And it has a very specific take on the Kennedy assassination and the relationship between the Kennedy folks and the Johnson folks. And that basically every memory created, every interview, every memoir written post-Manchester isn't actually a real memory of the event, it's someone, it, it is the participants reacting to Manchester's recreation of the event. Um, and that's sort of a little bit of how I felt in, in coming back, you know, 50 years later and like trying to do the like umpteenth interview with, you know, a, a John Dean or a Bob Woodward or a um, Carl Bernstein, uh, which is, you know, you're not getting you're not getting a contemporaneous reaction. You are getting a interview that is sort of carefully structured about the sort of their memory in relation to the other memories that have been told over the last fifty years. And and did you rely on books that had been written contemporaneously? Yeah. Uh, yes. So I. So what I. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I used a, a mix of, um, you know, the original archive, um, uh, archival materials. Um, you know, I've got, uh, um, you know, a little blue volume here that uh, Jill might that recognize. That is the most important, yes. Um, the, the Watergate Special Prosecution Force report from October 1975, you know, the... Um, you know, 30 volumes of Irvin hearing and Rodino committee hearing and documents. Um, and then, yes, all of the documents and, and memoirs that have been written since. Um, and there are, um, you know, th this is actually an area where you can just drown in the existing documentation of uh, this event. Um, and and particularly even you know the the documents that have been opened up and released in the years since um, you know part of this telling which again Jill Jill understands this better than almost anyone um, you know we tell this really simplistic story of Watergate as sort of the five burglars yada 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 and Dixon resigns um, but there were sixty nine people who were ultimately indicted and charged in the full scope of Watergate, um, um, you know, uh, six, uh, close to 60 of whom uh, ultimately pleaded guilty or were convicted in trial. Um, and, you know, there are voluminous investigative reports about each of those people, um, some of which have just come out, including, um, you know, like I was able to draw upon the um, investigative files uh, of George Steinbrenner, the New York Yankees owner, who ends up being one of the people uh, indicted and, and convicted in uh, the campaign finance allegations uh, around Watergate. So I have a question about your cover because it intrigues me a lot. It's something that I don't think every young person could even name. Tell us about it and how you landed on a tape recorder uh, on the cover. Let me hold it up yes. while we're... Yeah. Uh, th this is not just any tape recorder. This is the Nixon uh, tape recorder. Um, and whoa, whoa, wait a second. <laughs> that is not the tape recorder. Well, it's not that the, it's not the, that's not the, it's not the one that was this. erased. It, yeah. Oh, yeah. This yes. is yeah. the tape <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. This yeah. is an evidence the, photo. That is yeah. not the tape recorder. Yeah. Um, and the, the, really, the, the, the Nixon tapes is the center of this story. Um, you know, it is the center of the, the Watergate uh, fight. It's the center of the showdown between the various institutions of the American government, um, you know, from the Special Prosecution Force to, uh, to Congress, to the White House, to the Supreme Court. Um, and, uh, and of course it is ultimately the, you know, the release of the smoking gun tape that is what sinks Richard Nixon, you know, all the way at the end. Um, and so, you know, we, we loved this cover just because of the sort of simplicity of, um, you know, putting the tapes at the center of this whole scandal. So, but what tape recorder is that? Is that just a random tape recorder? Uh, n it is not a random tape recorder. I'm and I'm forget. I think it's the Euro uh, uh, two hundred or um, it's it's not the Rosemary Woods tape recorder, but it's it is it's not the, the Euro one. that was used. It's not even remote. I'll, I'll I'll let me get out the best picture. Here's one of the close-ups. I mean, you can see it doesn't look anything like that it has white keys with one dark key and that's the recorder that she erased that she says she erased on um it's light light gray with white keys and one dark dark key and it, it there 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 was a graphic done on many magazine covers at the time this is a slightly different view of it let's see That is, that's the infamous machine. Yeah. And this is uh, that particular document, evidence document 71. Uh, the other was yeah. 70. But anyway. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm looking at a larger photo of it. So this is the Sony tape recorder that was actually the one that Nixon was listen uh, that that recorded the one he listened to at Camp David. Uh, yes, uh, yeah. This is the one that actually recorded the White House conversations, not the ones that they used for the playback. Oh, I see. Although they did play back on a Sony at Camp David the day before the supposed erasure on the Euro, which was delivered yes. because yep. she hated the Sony. Uh, she didn't yes. like anything about <laughs> it. And so they got her a new machine. Um, anyway, um, your, your book is called Watergate, A New History. And of course, as you've described, it encompasses much more than what is traditionally defined as Watergate, which is the break-in and the cover-up. And um, you, you include the Pentagon Papers as sort of the beginning of the, um, the unit that did the Operation Gemstone of the White House plumbers who were called plumbers because they were plugging leaks, that is, of the Pentagon Papers. Um, so it, your decision was just that you thought it was a, a, a broader, and, and maybe we could relate that to today's investigation, which is called the January 6th hearings, but really, in my mind, and I think in the committee's mind, must include everything that led up to January 6th, the, the lies that were being told and the planning that was yep. being done, and everything that is going on to this day to continue the cover-up of the, uh, the conduct of the administration. So is that sort of how you saw this when you were putting together the book? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I think one of the things that I tried to trace out in this book, um, which I, I think is what you probably experienced in the midst of the investigation, is that Watergate isn't an event, it's a mindset. And it is this relation, it, it is this dark, paranoid, conspiratorial, criminal sort of ends justify the means uh, mindset that Nixon brings to the White House and then that permeates his administration from 1968 right through 74. Um, and that Watergate is really an umbrella under which you have about a dozen distinct scandals um, you know, that encompass everything from, you know, the Chenault affair and the Pentagon Papers and uh, ITT and the Dita Beard memo to, you know, milk price fixing and campaign dirty tricks and the burglary and the burglary cover-up. Um, and, and in fact, buried in there, you know, are you know, quote unquote, independent scandals that if they had occurred in any other presidential administration would have been some of the biggest scandals in modern American history, like Spiro Agnew's bribery scandal, which is sort of totally unrelated to Watergate, but very intricately linked to the events of Watergate. Um, and then, you know, there are things like, you know, Nixon's I am not a crook quote, actually comes in relation and defense of uh, a, a distinct thread of this investigation that is uh, uh, that's about presidential tax fraud and whether Nixon uh, sort of misappropriated government renovations to his private properties in uh, San Clemente uh, and and Key Biscayne. Um, and that I, I think you're exactly right, Jill, that this is what, what we now understand of Watergate is similar to what we saw with Donald Trump, which is this, you know, again, dark, paranoid, criminal, conspiratorial mindset that permeates the actions of the administration and leads to a lot of distinct scandals, all of which stem from the same core fault. 
it, it's so true, and there are so many things. If, if you even hold up that little teeny blue book, the Special Prosecutor's Report, which is a very, very compact analysis, it's not just the Watergate break-in and cover-up trial. That was the main conspiracy case, and, and it's the one that got a lot of attention. But it does go through all the things that you've just mentioned and more, which were all part of and a result of, you know, if you go back to Scaramucci, the mooch who held position in the White House for a brief blink of an eye, but who said, the fish stinks from the head. Mm-hmm. And it was the tone that Richard Nixon set, which was, if I do it, it's okay, it's not illegal. And later said that out loud after he was no longer president in an interview with um, uh, Frost, David Frost. And that's the same thing that's going on now. It was the tone set by the president permeated everybody else and led to the crimes where everybody thought, well, I can do this because if I do it, it's, it's, it's okay. Um, just uh, on one other question in terms of from your reading of various books and selective use of you know, some of them for, the, for your book, what did you learn about Richard Nixon you know, that would lead us to say he set the tone and that he had was either amoral or immoral. Um, and anything you can think of that particularly struck you about his character? Yeah, I, I think that Richard Nixon has got to be one of the most fascinating psychological portraits that we have of any figure in the modern American politics or, or the, the 20th century. Um, you know, by almost any measure, he is one of the two or three most consequential presidents of the 20th century. Um, you know, he is, uh, you know, this uh, figure who emerges from the far reaches of uh, you know the early 20th century America. You know, the first. Uh, baby born in the new town of Whittier, California, um, you know, delivered by a doctor who arrives in horse and, in a horse and buggy, um, and then you know rises to be the uh, you know the human who is on the cover of Time magazine more than any other person in the 20th century. Um, you know, he's on the cover of Time magazine. 55 times, you know, more than a year's worth of news magazine covers in an era when the news magazines really ruled American media. Um, He uh, is the president who brings detente with the Soviet Union in the Cold War. He reopens China. He's the first president to visit Moscow, first president to visit Beijing, first president to visit a communist bloc country in the Cold War. Uh, on the domestic front, he uh, he creates OSHA and the EPA and signs Title IX and brings uh, a thousand women into the middle management of the federal government and the first military f- first female military aides to the White House. You know he declares the war on cancer and he escalates and ultimately winds down the war in Vietnam. Um, And yet all that history will really remember of Richard Nixon is the one word of Watergate. Um, And he is brought low uh, by his own dark, paranoia and this sense that his, uh, you know, he was never respected by the elites and he was always an outsider and his enemies were always out to get him and he needed to wake up every morning and, you know, go out and stick it to his enemies before his enemies stuck it to him. Um, And, you know, he is a president who comes so close to greatness and yet is, uh, you know, fosters this, uh, as we've been saying, this this end justifies the means politics 
that sinks his presidency, sinks, you know, virtually everyone around him, um, you know, leads to the, you know, arrest and trial of, um, you know, almost every single one of his top aides in the administration. Um, and, uh, you know, ultimately forces him to be the first president to resign from office. Um, and I, I, I think that he is uh, uh, just this immensely lonely and, and paranoid figure atop the U.S. government. Um, and one of the things that really stood out for me, and Jill, I don't know whether you've ever looked at these uh, sort of either either back then or now, um, or. Uh, but you know the, the the Nixon Library now has publicly available all of the presidential daily diaries, which is the document that the uh, White House keeps, uh, you know, minute by minute records of who, where the president is, who he's meeting with, who's in the room. Uh, how long a telephone call takes place, um, you know, when the president gets up and moves to a different room. Um, and one of the things that I just had no understanding of before uh, I, I started researching this book was, you know, you page through those daily diaries for the final year of Nixon's presidency. And just like day by day, week by week, you see... Um, the tapes consume Richard Nixon. Um, and, you know, Washington is a city, and, and we as a country, arguably, you know, there's no more finite resource in the country than the time of the President of the United States. Um, and under any normal presidency, you know, that is so closely guarded and so closely policed and cl so closely scheduled. And then, you know, beginning in sort of April-ish 1973 and continuing through August of 74, you know, week by week, you see Richard Dixon spending ever more time alone, sitting by himself, listening to these tapes, you know, sitting in his old executive office building hideaway, writing on a yellow legal pad by himself. Um, and there are days that go by where he does like six minutes of quote unquote presidential work. And the rest of the time he sits by himself listening to these tapes, just stewing. Um, and I just can't imagine what that must have been like in order for him to have um, sort of lived through that time and been sort of so alone and so consumed by that uh, by those tapes the the presidential daily diary except in the trump administration was extremely helpful to us and really did uh, allow us to have some real sense of his conduct and activities and some of it is really remarkable um and and of course, John Dean has written a book in which he lays out all the tapes and details um, that show you, for example, what his reaction is when he listens to a certain tape, and then what does he do next? Or um, I know from the 18 and a half minute gap that as soon as Rosemary Woods runs into the office and says, oh, I made this terrible mistake, I had an accident, and what does he do? conversation with Al Haig about what? Well, they say it was about Agnew. I think it was about, hey, she thinks she made a mistake. Let's let her take the blame. So um, it, it, there are a fascinating and wonderful historical document, um, quite, quite important, I would say. So, Jill, um, I, I know that I... Uh, quote you in the book from your memoir, um, sort of laying the blame for that erasure probably on Rosemary Woods. Um, but I just love to sort of hear you give your 
your theory of sort of how that all went down and, you know, what do you think Rosemary Woods was thinking? You know, do you think she checked with Richard Nixon? You know, how much, how much of a willing participant or knowing participant was Nixon in, in that 18 and a half minute gap? So I think I'm supposed to be interviewing you, but we are meeting <laughs> in, in Austin, Texas. And I think that would be a fascinating discussion for us to have. Um, and I have some definite theories on who did it. And we know that Rosemary did not do it the way she said she did. We can right. start from that premise. That, that was not true. Um, but, but let's save that. And if we have time at the end, we can come back to that. But Okay. Um, let's let's. This is about your book, not my book. <laughs> and, and by the way, I did. I have found errors in my book, because memoirs are based on the writer's memory, right. and that makes it legitimate because this is my memory. But um, in a recent conversation with John Dean, I learned that he was actually in Florida in witness protection when we found when we heard Alexander Butterfield say there were tapes. My memory was he was in the office. I, it is true he immediately was in contact with us and helping us to decide which tapes to subpoena. Um, so that's true, but he was not actually in our offices. He was in witness protection. So, you know, I, and I'm sure there are, I will find other errors um, as people, and I've developed information since about who Rosemary Woods was by a conversation with her grand nephew. Um, so anyway, let's talk about your book. Victor, go ahead. Yeah. So one of the most striking parts of the book was the beginning of chapter nine. Um, and you describe the committee to reelect the president, otherwise known as creep and what they plan to do. And I just want to read a quick excerpt from that section of the book. You write that they were uh, sketching out the details of their campaign intelligence operation, planting of their operatives and the staffs of the Democratic candidates, uh, surreptitious entries for placing of electronic surveillance devices and photographing key documents such as lists of donors and drafts of petition papers, opposition papers, the capacity of neutralize uh, to neutralize the leaders of anti-Nixon demonstrations, the exploitation of sexual weaknesses for information and the promotion of ill feeling among the Democratic candidates to keep them as divided as possible after the nomination. I'm wondering, are there any historical precedents for this type of behavior? And did it set a precedent for what is happening now in terms of things like the Green Bay sweep? I don't think that there is any historical precedent for uh, uh, prior to Nixon's campaign for what the Nixon campaign was planning or trying to embark upon. Um, you know, I think that part of Nixon's paranoia is that he always imagined that his enemies were doing more cheating than they actually were. Um, and, and by the way, I think that that's actually one of the things that is very, a very clear analog with Donald Trump is that, you know, Donald Trump is driven in so many levels by this sort of sense that the, like the entire system's corrupt and everyone is out there cheating. And, you know, I'm not doing anything worse than anyone else is doing when in fact he is, uh, usually doing something that is far worse than anything else anyone else is doing. Um, and, and I think you see a lot of that with Richard Nixon as well. Um, I, I think at the same time, um, the we have seen nefarious plots in politics since. Um, I don't think we have ever seen a you know unit as clearly organized and clearly with as clear a defined mission as you know the plumbers and what ultimately ends up being sort of the dirty tricks unit for the 72 campaign inside creep led by G Gordon Liddy and and Howard Hunt with the help of uh, James McCord and and others um it, you know G. Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt are uh, pretty 
uh, unique characters in the American presidency. So um, we're recording this. Uh, well, so it's the 50th anniversary of the break-in when our audience hears this. So we want to give it the time and attention it deserves because it was a key moment in history. Uh, tell our audience, and especially people like me, too young to have read contemporaneous reports or uh, see the hearings that lasted uh, over 50 days, and Jill tells me uh, riveted the nation every day. What led to Watergate and who were uh, the key actors and events that were involved? Uh, So the Watergate burglary um, is uh, part of this series of actions that G. Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt have sort of cooked up to uh, cause trouble for the Democratic nominees. uh, the Democratic candidates. Uh, um, one of the things that is unclear is whether the burglars that night were actually looking for derogatory information, you know, political dirt that the Democrats had on Richard Nixon, or whether they were looking for evidence of the Democrats' malfeasance themselves. Um, and that there are a number of different competing theories um, about what was the sort of ultimate target of the burglars that night. Um, and, uh, but that's, that part of that is really understanding also that the Watergate burglary that night was not the first Watergate burglary. Um, and that in fact, they had made multiple attempts to break into the Watergate that spring, um, including a successful burglary in May of 1972, where they had installed some wiretapping and bugging devices that they were actually coming back to the Watergate on June 17th to try to fix um, uh, uh, the problems with those bugs the uh, from the first burglary. So w- one of the sort of weirdest bits of this story is that the time that they were caught was actually not the first Watergate burglary, but it was the second. Um, and that had they been successful that night, they were actually going to go on that same weekend and break into George McGovern's campaign headquarters um, itself. So, Garrett, this has been totally fascinating, and we aren't going to get you your question to me about the 18 and a half minute gap. And we haven't even really discussed the tapes or all of so many more things. Um, but I, 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 I want to have you back so that we can ask so many more questions. And um, I want to say to everybody who's listening today that Garrett and I are going to be at the Trib Fest in Austin in September. So if you happen to be in or around Austin, you should come and see us talking live. It'll be the first time we actually meet. Um, but I, I want to end by saying I did say on the Sisters-in-Law podcast, on hashtag Sisters-in-Law, um, something about how well-written your book was, but how aggravated I was because when I first got it, I immediately opened it because someone had told me, you must read this book. Originally, I thought... There's nothing I don't know about Watergate. I don't need to read a new book about it. And they said, well, but you're mentioned a lot, so you should probably read it. So, of course, I went to the index, and I'm going to open it now to the index, um, if I can find it fast enough. But basically, under my name, it says, um, let's see, because I want to read it accurately. Um, And my name at the time was Volner, so it's under V. And the first specific reference. It has a bunch of pages, and then it lists certain specific things. And the first one is physical appearance of, page 544. I read that, and I was going to, like, burn the book. It was like, how am I in a history book? And the first big description is my physical appearance. I wanted to kill you. And I said that, basically, on the podcast, and you were kind enough to email me saying, I hope you know I was putting it in. Well, why don't you say what your explanation was? Um, So one of the things that uh, really stuck out with me coming to Watergate and trying to understand that time in our country um, 
and uh, and the culture of that moment is sort of the rank sexism and misogyny that sort of took place in the public sphere uh, that as someone who didn't who was raised in a different era uh, is so stark when you look back on the the particularly the female participants of Watergate of which um, you know Jill you were one of a very handful of uh, of women in sort of meaningful roles in this story. Um, and that it, you sort of see it in all of the cases of the women who were in serious roles, um, you know, whether that's Martha Mitchell, Rosemary Woods, you, or another young lawyer uh, who makes an appearance in the book, uh, named Hillary Rodham, uh, who was the sole female lawyer on the impeachment committee. Um, and she, um, and she is actually asked, uh, by, um, uh, uh, by Sam Donaldson, uh, what is it like to be the Jill Volner of the impeachment hearings. And what they meant was sort of uh, these uh, these women who cut sort of very striking and significant presences in those hearings, uh, in, the, in the court hearings and then the impeachment hearings. Um, and that sort of how much of the commentary about your role, particularly Jill, was about your appearance um, and not sort of the work that you were actually trying to do. And so what I what I tried to do and what I hope you feel I do in the total context now that you decided not to burn the book but looked at the book with a broader lens is tried to sort of highlight how so much of sort of the serious work that was being done by women in this was sort of looked down upon or um, sort of shunted aside um, by these, uh, I, and I should say sort of very complimentary uh, words about your appearance uh, as sort of the bombshell, uh, you know, special prosecutor. I, I certainly, once I read it, realized that it was not what it appeared to be. Um, and it's accurate because headlines often were Jill Weinvolner, miniskirted lawyer, or yep. Jill Weinvolner, today wearing, and would describe before it got to what I did. Um, so you're accurate. And I could write another memoir that is solely focused on the sexism of the era. That, and it wasn't just me. It was all women. Um, two names you didn't mention, which I want to just add, of course, are Barbara Jordan and Elizabeth Holtzman, who yes. were members of the, uh, and, you know, Barbara Jordan's voice will ring forever. If you haven't heard it, I'm sure that there is somewhere on YouTube that you can find her speeches. And she was an amazing voice. Elizabeth Holtzman is one of the smartest members of Congress ever um, and has become a friend since then. Um, we worked on a Pentagon committee looking at sexual assault in the military together, and I got to know her quite well. Um, so I'm proud to be in the category of those, and I'm proud that Hillary was the Jill Weinvolner of the uh, committee. So yeah. that's that's a good thing. Um, I mean, that's that's that'll be one of my proudest moments in my life is to be associated with her. So thank you for explaining that, and thank you for spending this time with us. We have lots more questions. And to our listeners, I'd say, send Victor and me any questions you would like us to ask. And we're going to ask Garrett if he would be willing to come back and talk to us some more, because it is a fascinating history. And yeah. it is the 50th anniversary of this event. It's hard for me to believe since I'm still only like 36 years old. <laughs> so how could I have been 50 years ago? But okay, you get the idea. Uh, I, I was under that at the time. I was yeah. younger then, but I'm, I'm aging at about 10 years of, for one year or something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, anyway, Garrett, thank you very much for being with us. It was a pleasure. 
This Thank was so wonderful. Much, Thanks so much for chatting. Thank you so much for listening or watching to this episode of iGen Politics with Garrett Graff. We hope you enjoyed it as much as Joel and I did and that you'll leave us a five-star review and rating on Apple Podcasts and you'll follow us wherever you follow your podcasts. You can also find us on YouTube under Politicon's YouTube page and like this video and comment and subscribe so you get our weekly uh, episodes every Wednesday. Uh, Thanks so much for listening to this episode, and we hope to see you again next week for another great episode of iGen Politics. And if you did enjoy it as much as we did, let us know, and we'll try to get Garrett back because we have lots more questions, and send us your questions that you'd like us to ask him. And you can send those questions to IGP at Politicon.com or tweet either Jill or me or Politicon, and we'll uh, get to your questions.